We're continuing our, our foundations series. It's a 12-part series on doctrines that are foundational to the Reformed faith and really to the Christian faith. And uh, perhaps some might ask, why not start with the doctrine of God, uh, which is really the foundation for every other doctrine? And the reason for that is that about a year ago, we did that in, um, on the Wednesday night. And then also, I thought that if I start talking about the attributes of God under each category that we talk, then they'll become more accessible. Now, this is how the love of God applies. This is how the justice of God applies as we talk about these other doctrines. And that's why we haven't really started with the doctrine of God. We started with the doctrine of creation. And then last week we talked about the doctrine of, of providence. And now we're going to look at how the, the doctrine of creation and providence apply to the doctrine of humanity. Uh, um, formerly called anthropology, which is the study of man or the study of humanity. A couple of things that uh, are, are clear. The Bible clearly teaches that there is a unity in all mankind. Adam was the first man and his wife, Eve, was the mother of all living um, people. That, we see that in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 20, where Eve is called the mother of all living people, exactly like it says there on, this, on the slide. Uh, so all humanity came from the same place, the same people, the same two parents, and we all come from that. One thing is the Bible does not try to explain the difference, different races, um, how they came about. Uh, it just presents the fact that all men descended from Adam. And it's good enough for them that we are all united. Uh, if you have a Bible, open to Acts 17. And all that work for one verse. <laughs> Acts 17, uh, Paul is preaching before the learned, learned philosophers in Athens, in this place called the Areopagus. It, uh, in the past, it was misunderstood as being Mars Hill. So we have pictures of a blonde, blind Paul with his hair blowing in the wind, preaching at this Mars Hill. Uh, likely, the Areopagus was like at, in downtown, in the marketplace, where people would get together to hear ideas and exchange ideas. So he's speaking to these people. And he's talking about the gospel. And then in verse 26, he says, And he, he's talking about God here, And he has made from one blood, uh, could be there one man as well. Uh, some versions have there one man instead of one blood. Uh, Every nation of men to dwell on all the, the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. So, for one man or from one blood, every single ethnicity came from. Okay, so there's no uh, idea that somehow one ethnicity came from a more superior beginning than others. We all have the common, a same origin. Uh, one of the ways that we can account, what is, what is in science, what is one of the most cardinal rules? One studying science or studying in the lab or trying to figure out how things work. Science is real. Science is real. It's true. Real science is real. But then you have a double there. 
Chris. Right, that's one, one important thing in the scientific method, but there's even a more foundational rule of studying science. Okay, yes, that's part of the scientific method, but there's something that is, that, uh, is presupposed in the scientific method. Okay, that's part of the scientific, me- scientific method, but there's something that is more, and that is the law of uniformity. Have you ever heard about that? Who said no? The, the science nurse, look at that. Yes. <laughs> and so the, the basic for science is that things have always worked the way they work today. That, that's the, in order to be able to, you know, when you, when you do carbon dating, when any radioactive dating, the presupposition that things have always worked the way they work today. When you study biology, chemistry, this is up, up. You know, it doesn't work for the Big Bang. This has to be, but they don't talk about that. But so the law of uniformity. So if that is true, which seems to be true, because that's what can be observed today, then Adam and Eve contain the entirety of the genetic information for all ethnicities. Does it make sense? Every, every piece of information that resulted in the different ethnicities, different skin color, hair kind, eye shape, and so on, all was contained in Adam and, and Eve. Are we with me so far? Okay. Which, and then if the law of uniformity, uniformity is true, which seems to be, as we can observe, then the dominant uh, characteristics were the ones that were more uh, present in Adam and Eve. That being the case, they probably had very dark skin, very dark hair, very dark um, uh, eyes, and so on. And uh, so he, they would... Um, likely look a, whoa, whoa, way more like an African person than any of us in this room. Why is that important? Why do you think, is there any practical application of that today? Jerry's shaking his head. What is the practical application, Jerry? Well, to me, it tells me that all this race stuff they're talking about today is, is marked. Yes, I like that word. Very technical. All the race stuff is malarkey. Yes, we agree with that. Yeah, it's a scientific term. Yes. Yeah. Yes, so um, it tells us there's no races, right? There's one race, it's the human race. Theologically, you can talk about two races. That is the race of Adam and the race of Christ. And that's, that's it. But there's no such thing as different races in humanity. There's only one from one man all came. Also, it tells us that to think that somehow if you have a darker skin, you're less of a person, is to really not understand the Bible. One thing that we, don't, we have to understand is that racism has the same basis of sin as abortion. It's the same kind of sin. The, re, the reason you arrive at racism, the reasoning that allows you to arise, arrive at racism is the same old sort of reasoning that allows you to arrive at abortion. And we're all for, no, we're all against abortion, and that's, no. But it's the same kind of sin, because it is the presupposition that someone is less than a human being. And that's what all racism is, is the presupposition that somebody that doesn't look like us, whoever us is, is less than we are, which is less than a human being. And so that's a very heinous sin, 
is a murderous sort of sin, as abortion is. And the Bible teaches that that is not uh, the, the case. There's no look that's superior to another. There's no appearance that's superior to another. There's no color or hair, uh, hair kind or eye shape that's superior to another. They all have come from Adam. It also tells us that uh, a lot of our Sunday school material is inaccurate, right? Because it shows Adam <laughs> white and blonde and blue-eyed and... And so on, those very unlikely. It's like the Sunday school material that shows the ark like a boat. Uh, uh, that's also, I think, at least inaccurate there. Any questions before we continue? All right. The Bible. Oh, oh look at that. I had the verse up here and I didn't even remember. That's good. We can look at the Bible too. Uh, the scriptures that present the doctrine of original sin also indicate that Adam is the father of us all. If you look, to, to look at Romans chapter 12, where it talks about. As sin entered through one man, starting in verse 12, so salvation also came through one man. It, it tells us that we all come from Adam. We have our origin in the same, uh, in the same man, the same couple in Adam and Eve, and they were our representative. And everything falls, follows from, from them. All right, any questions before we continue? Okay, so... Man's self-knowledge. What is, what is man? That's the, 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 a uh, perennial quest to try to answer the question. What is man? What is humanity? Who are we? And modern anthropology seeks to know man in at least three ways. It wants to know man in relation to self. That's what we call psychology. So anthropology includes psychology. Uh, modern anthropology wants to know man in relation to others. That's sociology. And then modern anthropology wants to know man in relation to the universe. That is philosophy, and a, a specific area of philosophy called theology. Do not say that theology is an area of philosophy. <laughs> Two strikes, Lois. <laughs> you might be ejected from Sunday school here if we continue on that track. No, I need a board never. <laughs> yes. Now, it's one that uh, Aristotle put in his book, After Physics, and that's where it got its name as metaphysics. Yes, the era of metaphysics. The, the, how does humanity relate to the universe? No, not just in physics, in the physical world, but what comes after physics, metaphysics, and so on. So th these questions are important. These questions, that we, we may have not put them in these categories or use official label labels, but we all are trying to answer these questions in, in everyday life. That's just how we are wired uh, to do. And Reformed theology asserts that self-knowledge is possible, so we can know ourselves, but only through the knowledge of God. We cannot know us truly unless we know the God of the Bible. And, and, and a, 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 well, something that follows from that is that we cannot know us truly unless we know us through the Scriptures. If that is true, can you think of any passage of the Bible that teaches that? That we cannot know ourselves truly unless we know ourselves through the Scriptures. Lois, want to get this third strike out of the way right away and just get it done? <laughs> can you think of any passage of the Bible that says... You can only know yourself truly if you know it through the lens of yourself, through the lens of the scriptures. Remember James 1? 
Nick, are you going to say something? I was going to say James Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Remember James Swan, where he says that the, the man comes and stands before the mirror of the Word of God, and he sees himself clearly, and then he walks away, and because he doesn't do the things he saw, he forgets it. But then he says, but those that see themselves to the royal law of liberty and do, the, and do that royal law of liberty are the ones that truly know themselves and so on. So uh, it's through the scriptures that we know ourselves. So the best way to know ourselves, yes, let's know what's in our heart, but it's to look at what's in our heart through what the scriptures say. Uh, that's why the, uh, uh, the philosophy that was so, um, so popular in the mid to early 1900s in the ex- existentialism is so bankrupt because it says you can find all the answers to life by looking within yourself. The problem is that if you spend a lot of time within yourself, you are going to, by necessity, become a very depressed person. Uh, there's a lot of darkness within us. As a matter of fact, Jean-Paul Sartre was a very big proponent of existentialism, taught at the Sorbonne, and he would start every semester warning the students, say, if you follow what I'm teaching you to the logical conclusion, you will commit suicide. That's, that's how he began his lessons. Because looking within yourself to figure out who you are is insufficient and depressive. So we look at ourselves, who we are, through uh, the Word of God. And that's how we find out who we are, what man is. That's where we gain our self-knowledge. Any questions on that? All right, so man was also created in the image of God. The Bible teaches that. The passage asserting God's image in man. Uh, Genesis 1, 26-27 let us make man in our image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created man, him, male and female, he created them. So I think we are here a crowd that accepts that the Bible teaches that we're creating God's image. So I'm not going to have all kinds of other passages to look at it. But we're not going to look at it right now, just assuming that you're in agreement that the Bible teaches that we were created in God's image. But that image was affected by the, the, the fall. It got um, messed up. It got, uh, much like when you're looking at the Creole Lake and you can see your image and you drop a pebble and that image gets distorted once the, the pebble gets dropped. That's what happens with the fall. So Romans 1.21 says, because of that then, we exchanged, we knew God, we suppressed that truth in our righteousness and exchanged the truth for the lie. And those articles are important there in Romans 1. The truth that God is who He is for the lie that we can be God ourselves. And that's a result of the fall there. The Bible also teaches that that image has been restored in Christ. Uh, for the believer. So in Romans 8.29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So as you are sanctified, as you, so you've been regenerated, then you came to faith in Christ, then you've been declared to be perfect in the sight of God, then you've been um, declared to be innocent of your, of your sins, 
And God is restoring then the image, the fullness of the image that was there in your sanctification. The more sanctified you become, the more the image of Christ in practice is restored in you, though positionally it's completely restored in the moment you place faith in Christ. But in practice, as you obey, as you're transformed, as a God works His grace in you, then you become, that, that image is more and more uh, restored. Uh, in Ephesians 4.24, Paul says, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. So you've been made new, and now you put on that newness as well. And was, that newness was created in the likeness or in the image of God. Any questions on this? That uh, we're creating God's image. The image was, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Marred, messed up by the fall. It remained uh, in Genesis 5 and Genesis 9, post-fall, the Bible still says that we were made in God's image, even after the fall. James chapter 3 says that uh, the same thing. And then that image is being restored in Christ Jesus. Any questions or comments on that? All right, so what are some conclusions regarding the image of of God in man? Well, man as a unity, humans as a unity, is the image of God. Body and soul, male and female. It's not a part of of a human that's in the image of God. The whole human is in the image of God. Body and soul, male and female. We have image, and you think of pictures, right? But that's not really what the word image there is means this likeness is the same kind of things and so on so that's why we can include the body even though God doesn't have a body uh, fallen sinners are still in the image of God even though that has been marred now, um, if you, uh, Genesis 9 6 remember why is it that uh, uh, if blood is shed blood must be shed. if blood is shed by somebody then the payment for that is blood well, there, the Spirit says, because you're creating God's image. And so even after the fall, that image remains there as well. And the image of God is not Adam's knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Are you with me? It's not that original state of Adam that made him in the image of God, because we, the sinner still has that image. And ultimately, being made in the image of God means that you are able to be in a relationship with God. It means that you can worship Him. It's not necessarily just based on the fact that you're able to reason and so on, but it's primarily the fact that you're able to worship, that you are made a spiritual being. And the renewed man is a new man in Christ's image in a different way from Adam's original state. So our image of God is being restored but, the, but it's going to be in a different way than Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, 49, it says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, who is the man of dust? Isn't that Adam was created out of dust? We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So it, there's a different, we're in a better situation than Adam was in Christ. The redeemed Christian is in a higher position than Adam was as he becomes more and more like Jesus Christ. Any questions? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 49. All right. So, still talking about anthropology, still talking about who we are. It's important for us to realize that God made us body and soul, uh, two distinct parts of the same person. Uh, 
the Bible teaches the distinction between the body and the soul. The, for example, the creation order in Genesis chapter 2, body is formed first, then creative breath is given to men. That's the soul there. Uh, it's uh, the living soul is the term used there in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, body and spirit and body and soul are distinguished at death. One goes one direction, the other one goes another direction at death. Well, if you're saved, otherwise they all go the same direction. Um, the scriptures teach that, that uh, once death happens, the body and the spirit, the body and the soul are, are separated. Can you think of any scriptures that teach that? Danita? All right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Being present with the Lord, being absent of the body is being present with the Lord. What else? Can you think of other passages that teach that the body and soul are distinct from each other, and we see that we see that in death. The thief on the cross. Yes, I actually have it here. Truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. And yet we hear later that the, he died. You know, his legs were broken and he died and it was confirmed. What else? Andrew? When Paul talks in 2 Corinthians about the resurrected body? Yes. There, would that be a relevant passage? Yes, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, talking about our body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. So it talks about the soul apart from the body being naked, but still in, in an entity that exists apart from uh, the body. There, uh, remember Jesus was warning about not, don't fear the one that can only do something to your body but to the one who can do something to your body and soul in hell. So there's this distinction between the body and the soul, but there's also there's a unity between the body and the soul in us. You know, uh, we are created as body and soul together. This, this is the purpose of our existence. And the soul of man can exist without the body temporarily but as such is incomplete and naked. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we just read, that though we, we can exist as souls only in the period between our death and the coming of Jesus Christ, which is called the intermediate state, that's only desirable because it's temporary. And that's something you have to remember. We talk about heaven as this period between death and the coming of Christ, uh, of the souls in the presence of Christ, and it's glorious because there's no sin there, but the Bible teaches that the Bible rarely uses the word heaven to describe that. The Bible uses the word heaven to describe our eternal physical body and soul state with Jesus Christ for all eternity because that intermediate period between our death and coming to Jesus Christ is only desirable because it's temporary because from the very beginning we're made to be body and soul. Our confession uh, teaches uh, the Shorter Catechism 37, sorry. Uh, the soul of believers are at their death made perfection in holiness, 
and do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies, being still united in Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. And that's what our hope, our blessed hope, is the resurrection at the coming of Jesus Christ. Any comment? Yes, Renee. Is there a distinction between the soul and the spirit? Is there a distinction between the soul and the spirit? Uh, it's my hope to show, to talk about that in just a few minutes. Jerry. All right, all right. Any other questions before we continue? All right. You know how sometimes we joke in, in, about theology here, and we joke by using the terms supralapsarian and infralapsarian and, and so on? Well, we're going to talk about things that are somewhat similar to that. But they have a practical implication, and I'll try to demonstrate. Still talking about the what makes us, us, our self-image, how God designed us. And that is these two terms, uh, and it has to do with how many parts are in the human. And that has to do with what Renee and Jerry were asking. This is not the how many angels can dance in the head of a pin sort of question. There's actually very important uh, implications that come from this. So hold on to this. Just stay with me for just a little longer on, uh, on this one. Um, we'll, I'll try to show that this matters. And this is the two terms I want us to consider. Trichotomy and dichotomy. Uh, is man made of body, soul, and spirit, or is man made of body and soul? I will say right off the bat, I believe the Bible teaches that we are made of two parts. Body and soul, and soul sometimes is called the spirit. And I'll try to show that from the Bible. Let's start with the trichotomy. This is really derived from Greek philosophy, particularly from the writings of Pythagoras. You know who Pythagoras was? Lois? No. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard the name, but I don't know. Have you ever studied the concept of A squared equals B squared plus C squared? <laughs> so the Pythagorean theorem was created by Pythagoras, but he was also a very well-known philosopher that believed that everything in life could be described by numbers. That, that's the, he, he, everything could be explained by numbers. And I like him. I like how he thinks. Uh, but he also had some f- other funny ideas, and Plato followed that, and most Greek and Roman philosophers who contributed to the New Testament word use uh, of soul and spirit also believed in that. And that teaches that we have three parts, body, which is purely material, soul, which be, will account for the understanding, the feelings, the sensibilities, and then spirit, which would be the reason, the will, and the conscience. So a lot of times the spirit here they were also called the mind. So there'll be a three parts of humanity. And there's, a, um, and there's a great impact on how you counsel people if that's the case. Right? So you have the body, and if you have a problem with the body, you go to the medical doctor. Yes, we're not trying to be super deep here, people. This is, <laughs> if you have a problem with the soul, the suke, you go to the psychologist. psychologist, and if you have a problem... Yes, no, just... Yes. 
Like when you're losing a video game and are like in red and you need a little bit of life. So it just did that. Just a little bit. Yeah. And then if you have a problem with your spirit, then you go to the pastor. That, that ask has been formulated in order to defend counseling, be removed from the church and from the auspices of the pastor and the, uh, the, the Christians in the church to give to some sort of expert outside of the church. So there's some practical implications. And there are a couple passages that are used to, to demonstrate this position. First uh, Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So see there? Soul, body, and spirit together. And then in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So soul and spirit being divided there. But if you look at the Bible, you see that it, uh, it um, teaches that soul and spirit, are, those two words are used interchangeably. What do I mean by that? Sometimes where you expect the word soul being used, the word spirit is used. And sometimes where you expect the word Spirit being used, the word soul is used. And they are used that way to describe each other. For example, soul used, is used for characteristics of the spirit. So the soul can be lost, which, which is being said as a characteristic of the spirit. Uh, the, the soul can sin. The soul is saved. The soul is purified. The soul hopes. The soul loves God. The soul loves, uh, praises God, which... In those three categories, that all fall under what the spirit would do. Uh, sometimes the word soul is used as a synonym, synonym for a person. No, the whole person, not just the spiritual side. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says that eight souls survived the flood. So do we understand that to be eight floaty spiritual things that survived the flood? Or the eight members of Noah's family that survived and spirit is used for the characteristics of the soul as well in James chapter 2, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Also, both soul and spirit are used of people who have died to describe the same, the same part of us that go to heaven between now and the coming of Jesus Christ is sometimes called soul and sometimes called spirit. For example, in Acts chapter 2, verses 27 and 31, it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or left your Holy One to see corruption. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the, of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So soul for the people that are in heaven. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, speaking the same group of people, it says, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So the same group of people that are in heaven, the same group of entities that are in heaven, sometimes called soul, sometimes called spirit, both referring, referring to the same group. Oh, sorry, I have stuff here. We'll just... Um, so... While soul and spirit refer to the same essence in man's nature, usage shows they carry different connotations for you. Uh, the soul is man's spirit viewed as residing in the man. Most of the time it's used that way. 
And the spirit is often used man for, uh, well, I don't know what the rest of the sentence is, but man's spirit viewed as belonging to God. So soul is often in relation to man, and the spirit is often in relation to that same part in, as it belongs to, to God. Okay, so in a nutshell, when the, in the passages, for example, where um, it talks about Hebrews 4.12, talks about the division between the soul and the spirit, what the, the, what's been said there is that the Word of God is so powerful that it divides the indivisible. The same way that it says it divides between the bone and the marrow. In, the, in, in first century thought, that was one thing. It was indivisible. And yet, the, the Word of God is as powerful as something that could divide the indivisible. And then in First Thessalonians, what uh, Paul is doing there, he's talking about the whole man. Remember when Christ is asked what's the most important command in the Bible? What does he say? Love God your Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Did you say body already? No, I mean, seriously, did they say body? Because part of that too, when you put it all together. Okay. But heart and mind. In the Bible, those are the same things. So why is Christ repeats that? Well, it's just to give, to let us know that we're to love the Lord our God with every ounce of our being. And he labels every possible synonym for who we are in there. And that's the same thing when it talks about body, soul, and spirit. That's bring everything, every word that's ever used to describe a human to show that that's supposed to be involved in um, the worship of God. Uh, John Murray, who's a theologian, when speaking about 1 Thessalonians 5.23, he says, It is in accord with usage of the Scripture to employ an accum- accumulation of terms to express completeness. And that's all that was there being said. So man is made of two parts, body and soul, or body and spirit, however you want to call, not three parts. Any questions? Yes, Renee. How does the Bible specify how animals are different? Yes. Yeah, so uh, in Ecclesiastes it says that once the animal dies, it just, it just dies. It, they don't have any eternal part to them. There's only the physical part. So there's no animal souls in heaven right now. So they're, they're amoral beings. There's no morality about them and there's no eternality about them. Though Billy Graham once, I saw an article in the paper saying, somebody asked, do animals go to heaven? And the answer he gave was, if, if having your animal in heaven would make you happy, then he's going to be in heaven. No, not really. Any other questions? Hannah. The main, the, the main part of being made in the image of God is our ability to relate to Him spiritually or to worship Him. So how is that different from the angels? Yeah, but they are also relating to, the, to Him as Father and children, to Christ as brother, elder brother, Savior. It's a different way that they relate to God. It's a different way that they worship. They're always worshiping God as creatures. Right, and we are able to worship him as father and as children and so on Andrew so a dichotomy view is pretty easy to get your mind around if you think about it as body and soul being separated mm. dichotomy view seems to be a little bit 
they believe that the soul and the spirit could that even be further divided like after death? No, yes. So the the uh, the soul part is your uh, it is your consciousness kind of is your ability to reason is your thinking and so on. So uh, it continues with your spirit in heaven, but it just gets a little more complicated to figure out how that all happens. Tilly. Mm-hmm. Is that where, like in Ephesians, it says, you know, if you're, uh, when you're, if you're an unbeliever, mm-hmm. unbelievers are are spiritually dead, mm-hmm. but then they still have something. So if they're only two parts, and the soul spirit part is dead, then it seems that they would only be physical. But they're spiritually dead. The adverb, adverb there doesn't mean that they don't have spirit. It means that they are dead for any spiritual things, anything that have to do with God. They're not going to turn to God. The, the, even their soul is dead. That's really what's saying there. They have it. And remember, that's a metaphor, right? Not a literal description, uh, because even dead is not enough. Because it's not only that, you, that the soul is dead, it's dead and walking in a different direction than God. Is dead and in active opposition to God. So uh, uh, you have to be careful not to, to take too literally what dead means, because dead is pretty inactive, just laying there and so on. And that's not really what Paul means by spiritually dead there. So, all right. Okay, quickly, if we aren't uh, yet figured out, <laughs> we'll use some terms that. Maybe we don't need to use every day. Let's add some more. <laughs> Where does a soul come from? And you think, well, does the Bible say, well, it's not that clear. And people have argued uh, about that. And there's three ways to look at the origin of the soul. Some teach, and all three result the same thing. So whatever one you want to pick, that's up to you. Uh, I mean, the the... the, the the everyday outcome of it is the same. Some teach that all souls were actually present in the human nature, which were found in Adam. Somehow they were all present, so that when Adam sinned, all souls sinned at that time. Um, traditionism says that uh, souls and bodies together derive from the parents, same way that you get your DNA in your body from your parents, you get your soul from your parents as well. That's the one I think is the best explanation myself. And then creationism teaches that bodies uh, comes from the parents, but then at the moment of conception, God creates each soul and unites the body at that moment. So that's why it's creationism, that God is creating that soul each moment uh, at the moment of confession, uh, of conception there. And then I have in my notes, it's a relatively unimportant question. So you ask why we're talking about it. Well, because it's there to be talked about there. Uh, I, I, uh, I, yes, Doug. Go ahead, say what you're going to say. No. The um, Christian pro-abortion mm-hmm. people, which I think is a complete oxymoron, but yeah. they, they claim to be so, uh, would say that <clears throat> they would add to that that um, the, the, the body of that you know, the fetus mm-hmm. is actually not 
a living soul until it takes in the breath of life. Correct. So when it's born, then, yes. then it has a soul, yeah. so that it's free game to kill in the yeah. because it has a soul. So the, that position historically, because there have been other, and has been deemed heresy. These three are not. Right. These are within the context of Orthodox Christianity. Right. You can believe in any of these and still arrive uh, uh, the same, because these, these all have to do with conception, right? The, 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 the argument with abortion has gone, it's no longer said that the, 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 the child in the womb is just a blob of cells because it's impossible to prove, to prove that's not a human being. So that's never, no longer the argument. Now it's personhood that's become the, the argument. And uh, Peter Singer at Princeton argues that you're not a person until you're eight years old. So anytime up to eight years old, you can kill somebody and you're not killing a person. So, uh, and he's a bioethicist. Seems like that's also not a, a contradiction of what he's saying, being ethicist and doing that. Uh, but the importance of this is that the soul comes at the moment of conception, not any later, not any earlier, and it is in, sin is impeded to that soul at the moment of conception as well. All these three views recognize that uh, we are sinners from conception on. Okay, let me finish with this. Skip, 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 skip. All right. So this is to think of all the stages of humanity. Looks like that. No. So, uh, Adam, these, these terms I use. He was in the state of posse pecara, posse non pecara. He was truly in the state of able to sin and able not to sin, though he was created in, in complete righteousness. He was perfect. He wasn't, he wasn't neutral on the fence. He could fall this way or fall that way. It's actually, that has been deemed a heresy called Pelagianism. He was morally perfect. He was inclined towards God. So it took more work for him to sin than to obey God. Right. So a sinner, apart from Christ, is in the state of pos and non pecara. He cannot not sin is unable to be righteous. The redeemed is in a state of posse pecara, posse non pecara. He is able to sin, is able not to sin. The redeemed are. And that's something that we forget. We, we keep on thinking of ourselves as in the second stage. And that's not where we are. We're on this third stage. Before he can take a picture. Oh, the unchanged. And then the glorified saints in heaven will be in a state of not being able to sin. And that's where we are. We will be at the resurrection. All right? Sorry, I went a couple minutes over time. Let's pray and then we'll dismiss. Father in heaven, thank you for um, being able to study these things. We pray that uh, the practicality of these things will be uh, evident to us. Help us to, you, to live as those who have been created and recreated in your image, in the image of your Son. Dismiss us with your blessings. Prepare us for... Uh, worshiping you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.